This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Prostitute, apostle, evangelist. You know who I'm talking about. Mary Magdalene's story of conversion from sinner to saint is one of Christianity's most compelling and controversial stories. The identity of this woman, but more likely women, has been disputed since the early days of the church. But her role as the first person to witness the resurrection of Christ makes her an astoundingly important figure in many ways I was never really privy to growing up. The Magdalene's interpretation changes throughout history, from medieval times to the Reformation, where the interpretation under Martin Luther takes on different meaning, which is the topic of my conversation today with Dr. Margaret Arnold. Her new book, the Magdalene in the Reformation is out now from the Belknap Press of Harvard University Press. Margaret Arnold is the Associate Rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Medford, Massachusetts. She received her Ph.D. in Religious and Theological Studies from Boston University. Please welcome Dr. Margaret Arnold. Welcome to Classical Ideas. I'm here today with my guest, Margaret Arnold, author of the brand new book, The Magdalene in the Reformation. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Greg. Can you spend a moment introducing yourself to the audience? Sure. I am an Episcopal priest, and I currently serve at a parish in Massachusetts. And I have a PhD in religious studies from Boston University, that doctoral work is where this book comes from. Fantastic. So I want to travel back in time to kind of set the stage for some parts of our later conversation today. If you could tell us how you came to be dedicated to and interested in religion in the first place as a priest and as a scholar, like take us way back to the beginning. Why do you care about religion in general? Uh, Sure. I grew up in Nova Scotia in Canada. And I come from a family full of Anglican priests. I'm the fifth generation of Anglican priest in my family. And so I grew up in the church and I always felt at home there and loved it and loved the stories of the tradition um, and the figures. But I didn't see a lot of female figures in the church growing up uh, with whom I could identify. Uh, So I have sort of sought out those figures and clung to them and wanted to investigate their stories ever since I 
started to study religion in seminary when I was um, about 30. Um, I have just fallen in love with the female figures of the tradition and their stories of persistence and strength through adversity. And um, so that's what I've really felt called to in my vocation as a, a religious scholar and a historian. Excellent. So when did academic practice and academic study kind of intertwine with your spiritual practices? Like, where did you pursue religion as an academic? Where did that begin? Sure. Well, I felt called to go to seminary after I had been out of um, college for a few years. And returning to the educational environment was just completely like coming home for me. I absolutely loved the privilege of getting to read books and talk about ideas, and I just never wanted to stop. So after I did my MDiv and was ordained, I stayed at Boston University for a doctoral degree, and I have felt that that, um, that atmosphere of being able to share an exploration of the tradition and being a steward of the history of our faith is really, really central to who I see myself as, as a, as a priest and as a servant of the church. When did you convocate with that PhD? Uh, 2014. Excellent. Okay, so the book that you have out right now, The Magdalene and the Reformation, is a topic that is very, very new to me. And so I'm having a conversation today with something that I'm, I know very little about. You are the introduction to my knowledge of this topic. So can you pinpoint the moment where you kind of realized a commitment to studying Mary Magdalene in an academic sense? Like what was it about her that initially resonated with you that has carried on through the research process and the writing process up to the present day as a priest? Uh, well, interestingly, I kind of felt annoyed by her as a figure before I knew very much about her. She was always kind of this exotic, um, sexualized figure in movies about the passion, for example. And I, I thought, why is this in here? This is just being put in to kind of make it more exciting. <laughs> um, and then when I started to read more about her history, I realized she had this amazing legacy of being inspiring to people for her preaching. Um, and that, that began to happen really on in the Christian tradition and grew hugely in the Middle Ages. And I just loved the, the rich background that she has provided for people of all different walks of life in terms of thinking about their own spiritual journey, because she's a person with a history and an interesting life, uh, and yet a person that was so close to Christ and so much involved in his ministry and in his, his crucifixion and in his resurrection. So we're recording this on October 15th, and the book you said the book came out only 10 days ago, right? Yes. Excellent. And it's out now from Harvard and Belknap. So um, how did you go about transferring the book from your dissertation research into this book form? Like, What was that process like of taking it from this academic paper into this book that's out for everybody to read now? Well, that was um, that was a long process. It took me a while just to um, sort of rest and recoup after the process of going through writing the dissertation and defending it. So I waited about a year before I felt I could, and I was working in churches all that time. Then I felt like it was time to try to move it out into the world. So I took the, what I felt was a really strong chapter 
and I um, I rewrote it so that it would be a little more accessible to people who weren't in that field. I'm a specialist in the, the Lutheran Reformation, um, but I tried to sort of change vocabulary, open up discussions to people who weren't really grounded in that place and time. And then I sent it to Harvard and they sort of said yes right away. So they also said, you need to do the same work with all the other chapters. And that was quite a long process too. That was really another year of rewriting to be accessible to a general audience. Excellent. So what got you interested in being a Lutheran Reformation specialist as well? Because that matters for the concept of the book as well. Yes, it really, it comes out of knowing about how Luther treated Mary Magdalene. And that was the springboard for me to thinking, oh, gosh, other Reformation figures must have been really interested in her, too. Um, So I had a, a work study job in my graduate career at Boston University Uh, helping translate Luther's sermons, sermons that had never been translated into English before. Wow. And I was working on these sermons that um, talked about the resurrection narrative in the Gospel of John. And so Luther really goes deeply into this story and elaborates on it. And he talks a lot about Mary Magdalene and how faithful she was to be the first one to witness the resurrection, to go to go when all the other disciples were afraid to go to prepare his body and um, minister, continue to minister to him even after his death. So was that um, was that translation work of Luther's scripture and sermon, was that like the beginning of the archival process for researching the book? Yes, definitely. Looking at those sermons started me off. And then I was at the same time doing my reading for um, doctoral exams and I was reading a lot about her cult in the Middle Ages, and there are some really great books about that. But all of those books end at the end of the Middle Ages and say, and then the Reformation happened. And of course, as we all know, people in the Reformation and Protestants don't like saints. So they stopped talking about her in those traditions. And having done all this Luther work, I knew that wasn't true for Luther, that he had really celebrated her as a figure And I knew how influential he was. I knew that if he had talked about her in an innovative way, that all of his followers would have done that and that all of his opponents would have reacted to it. So I followed up all those trails and found incredible discussions. So what was interesting about your archival process for researching the dissertation and the book? Like, did you travel anywhere? Did you go to any interesting archives? Like, what did you discover and what was really cool about that process? Well, this question uh, was actually really interesting because the way that archival research works now is so transformed from the way it would have been even 20 years ago. Um, As a a mom of young kids, I would have found it really hard to go to Germany and work in a library for several months, but I didn't have to because Mm -hmm. the um, libraries, um, the, the state library in Munich in particular, has an enormous online archive of scanned uh, rare early books. And that was what I was able to use if I, I used um, modern sources to identify what would, what would have been really popular books of sermons at the time or really influential preachers whose works were published over and over again. And then I just, um, through this library website, I looked up those original books from the 16th century, and I could just page through them, translate through, and read those sermons, and 
figure out what they had said. Do you have like a whole bunch of like binders in your house of printed out sermons that are annotated heavily? I have a few that are like <laughs> that. Yeah. But many of them, I just go, you know, I just have the, the bookmark on my computer and on my browser and I just go back to the sermons if I need them. Excellent. So I, I want to get into the book a little bit. Um, what is the single most important thing that you notice modern Christians not knowing or misunderstanding about Mary Magdalene that is like essential? Like what is like something that you want everybody to know? Well, I think it's the place where I was when I started and kind of the place where you are is not knowing that much about her just knowing the kind of stereotype of, oh, she's this fallen woman who was hanging around at the edge of Jesus's crowd, and how much history there is of people looking at her story and deriving a sense of comfort, a sense of in inspiration, something that propelled them out into the world in ministry. And over and over through the generations, we, we can find those stories in the tradition and I just think that it is tragic for them to be lost. Um, so I really wanted to bring those stories back for people and to show how important she'd been, especially in women's spiritual journeys, but in, in the journeys of a lot of men, too. And she, like, brings the news of the resurrection to everybody. She does. In all the gospel accounts, she and a small group of other women are the first witnesses of the resurrection when they go on the Sunday morning to, to the tomb and they meet the risen Christ. And he tells her, go and tell the others that I have risen. And so that's the first instruction to someone to tell the good news. Mm -hmm. So she, she gets called the first preacher of the gospel and the apostle to the apostles, because she's the very first apostle of the gospel. Do you see modern Christians around the world as having a firm understanding of that in the stories? No, I think that somehow that the the, um, the other narrative of who she is, the fascinating story of sexual sin, has gotten um, to be dominant in people's understanding of her. And to a certain extent, that's a, that's a successful downplaying of her authority um, that, that the church has tried to do over the centuries because of this dangerous possibility that is raised by Christ's telling her to go preach, that lay people could preach, that women could preach, that sinful people could be preachers and ministers in the church. Interesting. Okay, so we're talking about somebody who is a person thousands of years ago, and in the modern age, um, knowing something like for sure about people who lived thousands of years ago is super challenging. So knowing like quote unquote facts about individual people from thousands of years ago is a real historical challenge. So what are some historical facts that we can mostly safely believe are most likely true about Mary Magdalene? There is very little. The record of her in the scriptures is really small. There's a woman who was supposed to be associated with the group of followers around Jesus. She's identified by name only twice in the Gospels. She's healed um, by Jesus from seven demons and supports him and his ministry. And then she's there at the crucifixion and the resurrection. It doesn't say anything else. And that's part of what um, begins this whole huge imagined narrative of what the rest of her life must have been is because from the first centuries of the church, people thought 
that's not enough. She's so important in being at the crucifixion and at the resurrection that we need to know more about her. So um, theologians and preachers associated her with some other figures in the scripture, with the sinful woman who washed Christ's feet with her tears and dried them with her hair, and also with Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And so they tried to fill in a backstory for her because really, historically, what we have in terms of evidence about her is incredibly small. Okay, so let's dive in a little bit to the book. So on page one, I'm a big fan of titles in chapters, and I really latch onto that. And I always wonder why authors name the chapters what they do. And you called the introduction to the book, quote, a woman for all seasons, which I loved. So for the benefit of the audience, what does this chapter title mean to you? I was trying to convey what a versatile figure she becomes uh, through the Middle Ages. That chapter sets you up with the way that her cult develops through that first um, thousand years or so of the church. With the association of her with these other figures, a whole legend about her life develops from the fact that she was born into a prosperous family and that she was supposed to have been married to the person who became John the Evangelist. But when he starts to follow Jesus, he leaves her at the altar. And she's so disappointed and angry that she becomes promiscuous. Not really a prostitute in the medieval legend, but just that she lives a very sinful life until she's one day converted by her sister Martha, kind of talking to her and prodding her to go see Jesus herself. And then she does and has this great conversion experience and weeps for her sins. And then from that point on, she's a faithful disciple. Um, And then she experiences the crucifixion and the resurrection. But they didn't stop there in the medieval period. They go on to talk about how she moves to the south of France after um, Jesus' ascension. And she converts the whole population of France with her preaching. And then she after France becomes Christian, she moves out into the desert in the area around Provence, and she becomes a hermit for the rest of her life. She doesn't eat anything. She's nourished by angels. And then she finally dies there, and her bones are taken up as relics by um, two churches, in fact, in France, who both say that they actually have her relics. So she develops this incredible story, and all those elements of her story, sexual sin and asceticism and being a contemplative and an intimate disciple of Jesus, all of those different parts are useful to Christians in the Middle Ages for their own spirituality. So is that how she's kind of interpreted, like pre-Reformation? Yes, pre-Reformation. She does have the component of having this um, sexual past, but she also spends so much time of her life as um, a hermit in the desert that she's a patroness of contemplative monks and nuns as well. And she's also a patroness of preaching orders like the Dominicans who are founded in the uh, 12th and 13th centuries. They take her as their model, even though they're a male preaching order. They see her as the very first preacher of the gospel, and so they take her as their patroness. So she's really a, a figure that is flexible and accessible to so many different kinds of people through that period. Okay, interesting. So you've used the word uh, cult um, of, of Mary Magdalene. So whenever we think of cult in 2018, people will have a very particular view of what that means. What does that mean 
in the pre-Reformation followers of Mary Magdalene. Yeah, so uh, cult is a word that we use in religious study just to describe the way that someone was interacted with as a religious figure. And it can mean all sorts of things from the ways that people wrote about her if they were theologians, the, w- the kinds of prayers that we have recorded that involve her, the ways that she was incorporated in worship services on her feast day, for example, or around the Holy Week Easter season when she's mentioned in a lot of the texts, um, art that was made that featured her paintings and religious dramas. Um, so it's just all of the religious practice that includes her as a figure is what I mean by cult in this sense. Excellent. Okay, so then we have the Reformation. Enter Martin Luther, who is an essential figure in the book for obvious reasons of the title of the book, De Magdalene in the Reformation, yes. which is Martin Luther's doing. So how does Martin Luther shape the way we come to presently view the Magdalene? So he takes her up in much the same way that the Dominican order had done as a model for preachers. He sees her as being um, an example of faithfulness to Christ um, above and beyond what the male disciples were doing at the time. She's really present at this pivotal moment of the resurrection, and therefore she receives the message and is told to carry it to the others, and she does. And so he holds her up as a model for preachers to follow, but also all Christians to follow. And then his followers, who also preach and write books and are very influential, they start to look at this question of, well, if Christ put a woman to use, a lay person, in this capacity as preacher of the gospel, then can't lay people, and maybe even women, preach the gospel Um, especially in the case of need, when there isn't a local pastor who's doing the job, who's preaching the kind of gospel that the community needs, could a woman step forward and do that? Could a lay person? And they agree in these early 16th century sermons that yes, they could. This is a profound observation of gender and gender studies as well, isn't it? Yes, definitely. It raises huge questions of the implications of our gender for the ways that we can respond to God's call. Um, One of the big discussions that was alive at the time of the Reformation was whether there is a spiritual equality of all people before God, even though there might still be social inequalities. The Reformers, like Luther, were not um, political radicals. They didn't want to change the way that society was structured. They wanted marriage and the family um, and the church and civil society to run in the same way it always had. But they did have a revolutionary idea about spiritual equality that was different. Medieval ideas about the way that women and men were made and the ways that they could access God uh, had said that they were fundamentally different, that women were flawed men and that they couldn't relate to God in the same way, that they could relate to God in other ways, and that was great. But um, reformers really came forward with this idea that there is a spiritual equality of all people before God. No one's capable of a sort of a spiritual elite kind of achievement of intimacy with God more than any other person. Okay, so Luther weaves together 
something that you call her composite identity. Yes. What is the composite identity that Luther weaves together of the Magdalene? So this is actually a medieval identity that he just continues. It starts with Pope Gregory the Great around the year 600. And he's one of these early theologians trying to build a backstory for Mary Magdalene. So he is the first one who says, I think she was actually that same sinful woman from Gospel of Luke chapter 7, who's coming and weeping and washing Jesus' feet. And I think she was actually also the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And from that point, everyone pretty much accepts that identity of her. And Luther does too. Right around Luther's time, humanist scholars are looking back at original documents and retranslating uh, the original you know, the earliest manuscripts they can find of the Gospels and saying, oh, th- all these women don't have the name Mary Magdalene. You know, they're probably different women. Um, and so um, people who agreed with that tried to separate out the composite Mary Magdalene into three different women. And Luther saw that happening and he said, well, she might be three different women or she might have been all these women. That doesn't matter What really matters is the lessons that all these figures carry for us as believers right now. These lessons of faithfulness to Christ, of gratitude for salvation, and of being told that we are all empowered to share the gospel with our neighbors. So he was okay with the fact that it might have been three, four, five people melded down into one person. Yes, he said it, you know, we're just not going to be able to know based on the sources. Um, But what is important is that this figure has been so central to people's devotional lives and should continue to be because of the important role that she had. Is Luther's interpretation widely accepted today by most denominations of Christianity? There is a lot of variety in terms of the way that people see Mary Magdalene based on the whole weighted history of how she's been portrayed in art, especially. Um, So that uh, the Catholic Church actually accepted the idea that Mary Magdalene probably was a bunch of different women put together in the in the mid 19th century. Um, and they they agreed to that there wasn't any possibility of knowing for sure. Um, and they continue to celebrate um, in their in their theology and in their worship, they do continue to celebrate her as the preacher of the resurrection. So there's been much more consensus uh, in more recent centuries that her preaching role is really important and that everything that was talked about in terms of her sexual history was a construct, a later construct. Everyone agrees about that in theory. But the result of the centuries of artistic and devotional production around her as a sexual sinner has been that that's what people remember about her still. Mm -hmm. Sex sells. Yes, exactly. Does... um... Are there any denominations that are like really um, compassionate towards the view, uh, like like a really compassionate view towards Mary Magdalene, like in the modern day? Um, I would say that especially in the sort of late 19th century um, first wave of feminism, 
that there was a great embrace of her by American feminists and especially by American women Baptists who were looking for a model of preaching that would be more, you know, that would open up the preaching vocation to different people, including women and women of color. Um, and so in the conclusion of the book, I look at a few of those voices. Um, but consistently over time, the denomination that has been the most um, embracing of her role, has celebrated her the best, has been the Quakers from their founding in the 17th century. And they were founded by a um, male and female ministers at the beginning, um, they decided that they were going to take her preaching as their model for how preaching and testifying could be done in their services. And so women have been able to preach in public in that denomination from its very beginning until now. And that's because of Mary Magdalene. Yes, yes. Oh, that is so interesting. Okay, so I'm kind of curious about how Mary Magdalene is celebrated. Throughout the book, you talk about celebrations of her, her feast day. Um, how is she celebrated? Like, does anybody still celebrate this feast? Yes. So her feast day is July 22nd. It always has been. That was really helpful for me in doing the archival research for the book, because in all these printed sermon collections from the 16th century, I could just look up the sermon for her feast day for July 22nd, and it would always be about her. So it would have their interpretation of her. And But the readings for her feast day have changed a little bit. The reading for her feast day used to be those um, legendary other figures, the, the sinful woman or, or Mary of Bethany. Now the reading for her feast day in the revised common lectionary, which is the set of readings that most of the mainline Protestant churches use um, is the resurrection narrative where she's called to go and tell everyone about the risen Christ. So her, her feast celebration has kind of moved towards much more of a focus on her preaching uh, in this century than in previous centuries. All right. So she's still changing. Our interpretation of her is still changing year by year. Yes, yes, definitely. And and not every denomination celebrates saints' feast days, obviously. Right. Uh, the Catholic Church does, um, the Anglican Communion, Episcopal Church. Um, she celebrated in the Lutheran Church, they celebrate um, scriptural saints in their tradition. But in a lot of the other traditions, um, Congregationalists and Unitarians and Baptists, for example, um, there is m much less um, celebration of saints and so if she's talked about, it's more at the discretion of the preacher um, who's interested in her and decides to select one of her readings to make a particular theological point. Okay, so for the last several years, as I told you before, I was a high school teacher at a public high school in the Midwest. And the vast majority of my students over the years have been um, Christian. And in the classroom, one of the things that really made our class special was people who would come in and interact directly with students, like guest speakers, guest lectures, um, Skype conversations, things like that. So hypothetically, imagine that you were coming to my high school class to do some Q&A with my students. What would you want the teenagers of my courses to walk away with at the end of our hour and a half of class time together? Like, what would you want them to really come to understand and embrace about Mary Magdalene based on your scholarly work? Well, I guess as a researcher and historian, um, what I love is saving stories from getting lost, from getting forgotten. 
Uh, and just the knowledge that she has been so important to so many generations of Christians and that they talked in such vital ways about um, the discovery of her story for themselves and what an impact it made on them. Uh, you know, if they experienced the church themselves as a big institution in which they weren't allowed to play much of a part except as a passive observer, and then suddenly they read her story and realize, oh, this ordinary person, this person that everybody looked down on, this person that everybody thought shouldn't play a big part, was called to play this huge pivotal role. And that that has been tremendously empowering for people. And in times when we would not have thought that they were debating, should women be allowed to preach in the 16th century, 17th century, all the way along, they have been having these debates about Mary Magdalene. And I want that that ongoing debate to be saved so that people don't have to think every generation, oh, you know, our stories have not been heard until now. These debates haven't happened until now. They have been happening all along. In a way, it's discouraging because we've been having these debates for centuries and we've never been able to agree on the <laughs> idea of, of all of our equality among each other and before God. But in a way, it's encouraging because no one, you know, people have persisted. People have not been silenced. These voices have been engaged in conversations that have ensured the survival of these stories over the whole life of the church. Do you think that your um, involvement in the Episcopal Church, like growing up in a family of priests uh, for a long time and in Canada, uh, shape how you see Mary Magdalene's significance that might be different if you were part of like a different denomination, say like the American South or in like Western Europe or in South America? Like, or how is she viewed around the world that's different? Um, and why does your upbringing make you able to see her in the light that you do? Well, I think that she was such an important female figure. And for me, as someone who has felt called to enter a tradition kind of in the um, heritage of my family, um, my grandfather, for example, was one of the first people who asked me if I felt called to be a, a minister too. And the idea that you'd be called into ministry by a friend and have that person say, hey, you could go carry this message too. I think that would resonate with anybody from any tradition and that that's why her story is so appealing across the board. But I think that coming from the Anglican tradition, I was more ready to look at the story of a saint um, and to think about how she could be important to people. I was more aware of that tradition. Someone coming from a more free church tradition or newly founded evangelical tradition might just not have the kind of exposure to those stories from the long arc of the tradition. And so that's something that I think the book can carry really um, well too, and that makes its story important for people. I know that you're also doing some work in education uh, and developing some Episcopal curriculum material. Um, what kind of projects do you have in the works? Um, so last year I wrote a curriculum um, called Jesus and Harry Potter, the magic of the gospels. Fantastic. And that's a program for middle schoolers that has them read the Gospels and Harry Potter side by side and look at parallels in terms of uh, sort of the ideals of self-sacrifice and friendship and resistance. Um, and so that's one that is, I'm continuing to develop. And I'm hoping over the longer term to turn it into a program that 
covers middle school and high school too, um, and that is sort of a great books curriculum, looking at the Gospels alongside great works of young adult literature, um, The Lord of the Rings and um, the Narnia series, um, the Madeline Langle books, um, maybe Cassandra Clare from more modern um, offerings, and that really draws kids in to see how these large debates about good versus evil and how you serve the community and who you are before God um, can be viewed as part of a dialogue that we're all having all the time through history and now. I'm curious if any of your questions about Mary Magdalene go unanswered for you. Like, what do you still wish you knew? I still wonder whether she was those other figures or not because the story that they wove through the Middle Ages about her is so convincing, it's so compelling, this idea of um, of coming to hate yourself and not see yourself as worthwhile and make choices that are self-destructive, and then to meet someone who loves and embraces you for who you are and offers you an important ministry in the community, um, that that story is is the story of a lot of people. It's certainly my own story as a Christian um, and as a person. So in in a sense, I sort of go with Luther in saying that, sure, you know, his, in historical reality, we're never going to know, and she might not have done all these things. But that story means so much that I'm not sure the original fact matters as much as the truth that her story conveys. Well, um, Maggie, un- talking to you today has been extremely beneficial for my own understanding of the text. To like put your voice um, in the story for me has been really helpful. Um, I'm curious if you can share where, like, you might like do like some like writing. If you have a website, like, how can people get in touch if they want to know more? Um, if they want to know more about this, the um the Harvard Press uh, website has the list of events where I'm talking about the book. I'm going to be um, at the Harvard Coop on October 22nd, um, giving a, a talk and signing books. And then I'll be at Tufts University in, in Medford, Massachusetts in the spring, um, visiting some of their religion and history classes uh, and talking more about the impact of these debates that happened around her in the 16th century for women and for people's understanding of gender in the church going forward. Excellent. Well, Margaret Arnold, the book is The Magdalene and the Reformation, out now from Harvard and Belknap. I appreciate your time today. This has been a lot of fun for me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Greg. It's been awesome. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is performed and composed by Derek Striving. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you would like to support this show, please subscribe or leave a rating in iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.